Thank you, Catherine. We continue this morning with our gospel reading. And as you're able, I invite you to stand for that reading. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. I'll begin reading in the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He, was, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not know him, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we begin together our exploration of the book of Daniel these several weeks well into October, we uh, will begin uh, exploring what God has for us, even in the midst of a secular world that we seem to find ourselves in. Now, exploration has been in the news lately, right? With the good news that another commercial launch from right here in New Mexico brought space tourists into space. You recall that maybe in the news this past week. I was thinking and came across... Uh, more exploration of our uh, space uh, years with the space shuttle in the not-too-distant past. And as I came across this story about the space shuttle uh, that some have called urban legend, others have uh, uh, portrayed and showed evidence for, I'll let you be the judge, but either way, it got my attention and I want to share it with you. It had to do with the, uh, the boosters uh, that we needed to travel into space to bring our shuttle uh, out into orbit. And so these uh, boosters were built not too far from here in Utah. And as I understand it, those boosters were originally designed to be wider than what they ended up becoming. And one of the reasons why they weren't as wide as uh, the designers first wished them to be was a real practical reason that they would in uh, part uh, need to travel by train to 
the assembly site. And so although they would be in many pieces, uh, the width of the rail, or as I did some research, or as one person argued, actually not the gauge of the railroad, but really the weight gauge of the railroad, and again, I'll let uh, engineers be the judge of all of that, uh, determined that the rocket booster could not be any wider than it was in order for it to travel by rail. Now, those rail widths are interesting. The U.S. standard railroad gauge is four feet, eight and a half inches. Four feet, eight and a half inches. And as one writer put it, why such a particular and peculiar width? Well, it's because engineers from England who brought the railroad technology to the U.S., that was the gauge that they used. And why did they use that gauge? Well, that was the width and regular use of their wagon tramways. And so they used the same jigs and the same tools to build the railroad that they used to build the wagon tramways. And so uh, why were those tramways that width? Well, if you keep uh, looking, you'll discover it's because uh, those roads were built by uh, the Imperial Roman uh, era, the empire, and so therefore uh, those were the widths of the road. And how were those roads determined by the Roman Empire? By the width of their chariots. And how were the uh, width of those chariots discovered? Well, four feet, eight and a half inches seems to be about the same width as the two hind ends of two horses next to each other. So if you follow with me, our rocket boosters for our space exploration were in part uh, in design, uh, encouraged, influenced, if you will, by the hind width of two horses, right? I share this with you for this reason. And not just for you to go down the long journey I did, uh, trying to find how much of uh, that legend is true, but I found much of it to be so. But the greater message is this, that there are things in our lives, circumstances that we are not aware of, histories that but we don't remember. Even if we live through them, we may not even recognize that they ever happened that still impact us today. And I come before you this morning as we consider uh, what it means to have faith in a secular world that we are being impacted by a world around us with a history and an influence that oftentimes we may not even be aware of. And not just the world out there, but right here in the gathering of God's people in the body of Christ. It's easy for us to assimilate in ways that we don't even realize. In fact, it was assimilation that was the task of the Babylonians that brought 
Daniel and his friends into Babylon. But unlike the frog in the kettle moment that sometimes we experience or the two hind ends of a horse that we don't even realize, right, that are influencing us, Daniel, a teenager, some say as young as 14, maybe as old as 16, said no. As you heard Catherine read for us, he said, no, I will not defile the name of the Lord, even in this foreign land. And we'll talk more about what that meant and how hard it was. But assimilation, sometimes we react with, instead, isolation. And sometimes it is appropriate for us to just say a firm no. But Daniel didn't seem to do either. He didn't assimilate or isolate. Somehow he engaged the world that he lived in while not defiling the name of the Lord. And that is hard for us to do when we're influenced by things we don't even realize. Author David Zoll, who wrote the book Secularosity, points out that the two hind ends, if you will, that uh, I'm talking about uh, in our culture today is something he writes about as uh, a religion that's being preached in our secular world. And that religion is enoughness. Do you have enough? He said you'll hear that word everywhere if you listen. Especially when it comes to anxiety or loneliness or exhaustion or division that plague us in so many proportions. He writes that you'll find people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough or not woke enough, good enough. We have this human desire distinctly and instinctively to reach some benchmark, he writes, in our minds that somehow give us value or vindication. And his argument is, is that this air that we breathe, this influence that we may not even realize in our pluralistic secular world is a religion. It's a religion of enoughness. And when we are the chief arbiters of enoughness, we become the gods of our own making in seeking that enoughness. How much is enough after all? Rockefeller famously gave an answer that Michael Jordan not too long ago gave when asked after his uh, great success in basketball and in advertising has made him a billionaire. They said, well, and he continues to, to pursue. He was asked, how much is enough? He said, well, just like Rockefeller, just a little bit more. Enough. How much is enoughness? And when we try to get there ourselves, we make a religion of our own making that we haven't even realized we have been assimilated into. And so how do we have faith in a world assimilated and preaching a religion we don't even realize is there? 
look to the book of Daniel, as we will these next several weeks, to consider what God did in him and through him and who he was pointing to and towards. Maybe you're wondering here this morning, do I assimilate or isolate? How do I have faith in this world today? This world that not only preaches this idea of enoughness, but says that that you and I are all there is, that what we see in the natural world are as Scholar and philosopher Charles Taylor wrote about extensively in his book, A Secular Age, says the world that we live in today is under this imminent frame, constructed social space that frames our lives with the natural instead of the transcendent. And because we long for the transcendent, then we try to make it ourselves in enoughness. Or as... Taylor will go on to write then, as we feel that competition or the cross pressures in this imminent frame in a secular world, then we, we get overwhelmed with this pursuit. This pursuit, and we become a people who are divided divided in our hearts, seeking enoughness on our own, instead of what Daniel recognized as a teenager, that there is only one way to be enough. And that is to receive it as the identity that God gives. As we read in Daniel 1 as the sons of Israel, as we hear in the New Testament as God's work of art, So if the terms of the debate have been altered to lead us away from transcendence, even though that's what we're longing for in today's apologetic and today's ability to give the reason for our hope, then we have to have a transcendent way back. And that way back comes to us from God's word. Now remember, we live in a culture in a land that we once uh, would articulate, though pluralistically, as a Christian nation. But the air we breathe is different. Even the most intellectual among us have fallen into that imminent frame. Let me give you an example that I noticed just this past June. I think it was June 15th on the television show Jeopardy. Adjectives 200. Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father which art in heaven, this be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Blank stares from the most intelligent among us. We live in today a secular world that is shaped by an imminent frame. But it's still the world that God has created And in this world that the Lord has created for us, where He gives us our identity, as we heard in the psalmist in Psalm 139 this morning, who forms us and calls us His own, this is still the place that He has given us His identity. Now in Daniel, 
Jehoiakim, the, the last king of Israel, had capitulated finally to King Nebuchadnezzar. And what was the first of three deportations, Daniel and his friends among the 10,000 who were first deported. This is even before Jerusalem would finally be destroyed some 20 or so years later. And there, the Babylonians had a plan to assimilate them into this new way of thinking, the Babylonian way of thinking. And so they would bring over the most excellent among them, the the white collar uh, of the social society, to convert them to this way of thinking. And you can see that as we examine the, the names of the folks that we get introduced to here in chapter 1. Daniel, who, whose name meant, my judge is God, or judge is El Elohim. Or Hananiah, gracious is Yah or Yahweh. Misael, who is what God is. The greatest God there is. Who is but God? Azariah, Yahweh has helped me. Their names were quickly changed in this new world to try and reflect something else. Even though uh, they knew who they were, this transformation would begin by changing their names. Daniel would be called Belteshar. May Bel protect his life instead of the one true God, Elohim, Bel, the pagan God, or some argue pointing towards uh, Murdoch. Hananiah would be called Shadrach, which now meant the fearful of God or the command of a coup instead of the graciousness of Yahweh. Misael, uh, with a turn of phrase, would be called Meshach of little account, or who is like Oku, as opposed to who is like our great God, the one true God. And Azariah would be called Abednego, servant of Nebo, instead of the graciousness of Yahweh. And we see very quickly this turn. And in the midst of that Striving for assimilation, Daniel would say, no, I will not defile the name of my God. And it was not easy for he'd lost everything that he knew. He'd lost the temple life, the worship life, the community life that he'd come to know. And it seemed as though because of their great sin that God had forsaken them. So why not partake in the feast of Nebuchadnezzar? And yet he knew that my God is my judge. And he and his friends would remain faithful. And the way that Daniel chose to do this, if you keep reading in chapter 1, and I hope you'll be tracking with us these several weeks and come back to Daniel 1 in your own devotional life this week, is through food. Now, 
The truth is, why he chose food is debated. Some have said it's because the food that was offered to them was not kosher. Though if that were only the case, then wine wouldn't have been excluded. Some have said it's because the meat that was being fed to them was because it was meat sacrificed to idols. Others have argued is that this food of the king uh, was feasting and they were in a time of mourning. We can debate all the reasons why, but what is sure and certain is that Daniel and his friends would choose a different diet as a way to not defile the name of the Lord and to honor their God and let his name be known. And when he was first told no, he continued asking with respect and determination and resolve. With great resolve. And with that resolve and determination, God would give favor to Daniel and his friends. Not unlike how God gave favor, and we'll spend some more time there next week, to Joseph before him. But let's talk about that resolution because it wasn't the strength of Daniel, it was the resolve of God who was with them that would give him the strength. As one pastor put it, they had been these temple people, but before that, they had been a people of the tabernacle where God traveled with them. And they remembered that they were not alone, that their God was with them. In the midst of exile, they were remembering that God was still in control, even though it seemed otherwise with Nebuchadnezzar overtaking their homeland and taking even the vessels of worship to Babylon. But they would not forget that God is sovereign. They would not allow the circumstances of the world to shape their identity. Instead, they would remember that God is with them. In the Gospel of John, as you heard read for us today, it says the Word dwelt among us. It says the Word came in flesh and dwelt among us. That word literally means tabernacle. Do you see what we see Daniel pointing to is not to himself, but the God who is sovereign, who comes to us. And God's plan, as one scholar will put it, cannot be annulled by a Babylonian king. God's plan cannot be annulled by today's culture, annulled by the real heartache and the deep valleys that we walk through. God has established a covenant with us, and however dark that valley would be for Daniel and his friends in exile, however dark it may be for us on this side of heaven, God says, I have got you. You are mine. And the structure of this book is, we'll read it together, and I'll say more about this as we go through it, is uh, what scholars call a chiastic 
structure, or I like to call it from a professor I had years ago, a cosmic cheeseburger, right? Where you pay attention to not what's on the outside, but what's at the center. And everything in this book keeps pointing us to what is at the center, and what is at the center is a God who is with His people. And so friends, today I invite you to consider not just to be like Daniel, but turn your eyes to the greater Daniel, Jesus, who he's pointing to. That it's possible to have faith even in difficult days in a secular world that points to everywhere but the one true God. When we remember that he is sovereign, he is with us. Daniel's resolution would seek first the kingdom of God. This would surprise and impress the Babylonians to be sure, but it's no prosperity gospel. If I just do this, then God will give me that. It's remembering to be resolved not by my strength or my enoughness, but His great resolve for us. The Word that dwelt among us and tabernacles with us. Forces we don't see that likely shape us, even the hind end of horses, let us have great resolve that there is a greater force, a God who made us and calls us. And while this world might continue to try and define and redefine, He has set His resolve upon us and given us the name for all those who believe in Him, children of God. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him, but all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Let us resolve this day to receive this gift and follow this gracious God. Amen.